Join me in your Bibles this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. Looking forward to this new year, us working through the Gospel of Matthew together. Uh, it was a real joy to spend time during the Advent season, the first several chapters there of Matthew, and uh, excited about uh, more time in the Gospel with Christ this coming new year. Um, I make no promises as to the haste with which we'll work through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, but am in just enjoying in my own personal study, my own personal time. Uh, it's just been a number of years since I've specifically spent time in one of the Gospels, uh, and Matthew is just a rich delight. I love the, the, the layout, the structuring of the book, the way he is patterning his sermon, and uh, what he is trying to do all the way through, and I and I hope that by God's grace, the Spirit would uh, just help you to understand and grow in your own walk. This morning, we, we finish uh, the section where Matthew's really recording the birth story and running from about verse 1 of chapter 3, so chapter 3, all the way through about verse 11 or so of chapter 4, uh, we have kind of an introduction of the, the public ministry of Jesus. So it's really the preparation of Christ for this moment when it finally kicks off, so to speak. And then rushing from verse 12 of chapter 4 through the end of the book, you have this public ministry of Christ. And so we'll take at least two sermons, if not three, uh, to work through this preparation phase because there's so much there that, that we need to understand and grasp that will help us to even deepen our understanding of the rest of the book. And so I want to begin by reading chapter 4, verses 1 uh, through 12, or chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and then we'll, by God's grace, start unpacking this morning. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. There are two pictures in this text that are a wonderful uh, ascent to the proverb that a picture is worth a thousand words. Understanding these two pictures helps you to understand the text itself and the structure. 
Uh, the two pictures are very simply one of mountains and valleys being made into plains. So just the, the crushing of mountains into flat land, the raising up of valleys so that everything is flat and even. Uh, and, and you can see for a long distance. So picture one is mountains and valleys made into plains. And picture two is the harvest time. What they both have in common is explaining the massive impact of the arrival of King Jesus. Uh, the mountains and valleys into plains is almost an umbrella picture. And then the harvest time is really insight into the individual hearts of the hearers of the message of John and then ultimately of Christ. So what happens, because clearly John the Baptist is coming, preparing the way for the king. What happens when we don't read a room or a situation correctly? What happens if we miss signs? What happens if we're in a spot and we think one thing and the truth is actually something very, very different. I've had a few occasions of those kinds of occasions in my life. There's been more than one time I've stuck my foot in my mouth. Um, one time I remember getting in an elevator in Baltimore, and this, won't, this name won't mean much to many of you, but to some of you, you'll, you'll remember. And we got in the elevator, and the, the guy I was doing construction with suddenly looks like he's struck by lightning. There's one other gentleman in the elevator with us, and I had no idea what was going on. And it turns out we were in the elevator with Johnny Unitas. And Johnny Unitas was the star quarterback for the Baltimore Colts at the time and uh, was a Hall of Famer and well-known and just an amazing kind of sports figure. I didn't know who he was, so I didn't really care who he was either until I found out later. There's been a number of times I've misread the room. I, I spoke to a college president one time in a way that anyone else would have considered offensive because I didn't know who he was and I didn't care who he was. What happens if we don't read a room rightly? Uh, there was a commercial a number of years ago, some of you might remember this, where Jeff Gordon dressed up like, like nobody knew who he was. Jeff Gordon, very famous NASCAR driver, and he went like he was going to go buy a Camaro on a car lot, and then he just went ripping down. It was a closed course and scares the daylights out of the used car salesman who completely misread Mike, uh, the guy shopping for a Camaro, he thought. Well, there was another guy that came on YouTube, another used car salesman, he said, I think it's a setup, I don't believe it. And so they turn around and set that guy up. And just Jeff Gordon terrifies him because he just misreads the rooms. It's hilarious. It's a hilarious commercial. You should YouTube it. It's funny. Or there's the guy on the plane with Mike Tyson, former heavyweight champion of the world a few years ago, and he began to antagonize Mike Tyson. Like, I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm not, I'm not knocking this. I'm not judging this. I'm already reluctant. If, if, if my man shows up and he's got face tattoo... You've already made some life choices. I'm not going to irritate you. I want to get to know you. I'm not going to aggravate you. If you've got that and you're the former heavyweight champion, and so this guy antagonizes him to the point, like hits him in the head with a water bottle. And Mike Tyson takes it, takes it, takes it, finally can't take it no more. And he just pounds this guy. Um, it was so bad that the police department wouldn't even charge Mike Tyson because they saw this guy just did it as a stunt so he could later sue him. He was not reading the room correctly, right? What happens if we don't read this rightly? What happens if there are people, and John the Baptist is here in his camel hair clothing with honey and locusts on his breath, saying, repent, for the kingdom is at hand, and and saying things like the, the winnowing is about to happen and chaff is going to be blown away and judgment is coming. 
the king is coming. What happens if we don't read that rightly? What happens in our lives if we don't understand what this really means and the implications of the arrival of the king? Later on in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 24 and 25, there's something like four or five parables that talk about the coming kingdom. There's lots of nuance there, and we will obviously get there eventually. But, but you really could boil it down to a few key truths, at least, to, to understand. One of those would be, be diligent. In other words, be working hard, because the king is coming back. And Jesus declares this to the people, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back, so you better work hard while I'm gone. Um, another truth from Matthew 24, you don't know when he's coming. You don't know when he's going to show up. Whatever your eschatological view is this morning, I, I, as long as you believe in the return of Christ, great. The reality is nobody knows when that's going to happen. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Look, I, I'm now 49. I've spent my whole life in church. I've heard more sermons than I could count, particularly as a young person, about, oh, now we know. Now this is going to happen. The red heifer's been born. This is going to... Nobody knows. And Jesus, actually, I'm going to go with Jesus. Jesus says nobody knows. So I'm going to go with that one, right? Nobody knows. I'm coming. So what, how should you behave if nobody knows? Be watching, be working, be faithful. It's going to happen. And so we have these truths where Jesus shows up as the king. He's going to depart and he's going to come back. And he feels the need to warn us about how we should function. And so we have these kind of mirror images where John the Baptist is showing up and he's warning them. Read it rightly. The king is about to be here. It should change what you do. It should change how you live. It should radically transform your perspective of life. Christ comes. He has his ministry. He dies. He resurrects. And before all of that happens, he warns them, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. And so the reality is, when we look at this text, it, it would be easy to to read back and say, what was their problem? Jesus is about to show up. But I think there's even lots of truths for us today. Jesus could show up at any time. Um, I'll never forget in seminary, one professor told the story. He went to observe a senior in college preaching at a church um, for one of his classes. And the, that particular church at the end of the sermon, the, the senior in college, he had everybody bow their heads, close their eyes. And he preached on the return of Christ. And when he did this, while everybody's heads were bowed, everybody's eyes were closed, he reached down behind the pulpit and he had a trumpet. And he pulled the trumpet out and blew the trumpet. Besides the fact that that's stroke-inducing. Um, the person just laughed and said it was just this stunning moment. I think it's hard to live with that kind of readiness, though, isn't it? Like, that it's any moment? It's hard to live on that knife's edge? That's what it feels like. So, so how do we really process through this? And, and so I believe that there are actually some vital truths that we can learn this morning here so that we are prepared for the king who is coming in all his glory. For whatever the differences are between the first advent of Christ and what we would anticipate is the second advent, the second arrival of Christ, John the Baptist and later Jesus, they have this in common. It should matter to you that the king is coming does it. And so we have these 
incredible groups. We have these pictures. And so the way we can actually tackle our text this morning is through the lenses of these pictures, these two pictures, mountains and valleys made into plains and harvest time. So we'll talk about this mountains and valleys, this umbrella. It forms kind of an umbrella structure for the whole text. And then he digs more into harvest time to deal with our hearts. And so let's talk about this first one of mountains and valleys turned into plains. The passage that, that is being quoted here by Matthew is from Isaiah. Uh, and we read it this morning. Let me just read from verses 3 through 5 in Isaiah 40. Because I want you to get the fuller context. Matthew is writing to Jewish, a Jewish audience largely. Uh, John the Baptist is preaching to an almost exclusively Jewish audience. They would have gotten this immediately. They would have understood exactly what he's talking about. Whereas it's a little harder for you and I. So want to make sure we get the bigger picture. Isaiah 40, 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is such a critical promise uh, or prophecy that Mark actually begins his gospel account right here. Uh, John includes it. John has a little bit longer intro for several verses of the Gospel of John chapter 1 where he's building a theme about light and darkness. But as soon as he's finished that theme, this is the passage he goes to. Luke does the similar sort of thing. Once Luke has finished the birth story and as he's working down through the birth story, he quotes from Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he goes to this passage. All the gospel authors understood if you're going to tell the story of Jesus, you have to start here. This is foundational to our understanding about the arrival of King Jesus. But you have this fuller quotation about the purpose. And so while we understand John the Baptist is the one, the voice of the one in the wilderness crying, he's there to make straight. What is the point of making it straight? And so there's two ways to understand this image then of mountains and valleys being made into plains. First has everything to do with shadows and light. Now, uh, you can't, whenever we come to the Bible and we want to interpret the Bible, and this is called hermeneutics, like, so how do we rightly interpret the text of Scripture? It's not just open to everyone's interpretation. So the problem is when we say a picture is worth a thousand words, sometimes people will be tempted when you see a biblical picture to, do, to treat it like you treat it in an art museum. And we go to the art, if we all went down to the art museum, downtown Columbia Metropolitan Art Museum, um, or, or you went to a bigger museum, say New York City, the Met, and you stand in front of a painting, it would not be uncommon for people to say, well, how do you interpret that painting? And the more modern the art is, the more open to interpretation it's intended. I think Francis Schaeffer in his theology about art does a great job. He tells us the best artists communicate in such a way that you get the message the artist intended. In other words, it's not just whatever you think it is. But more modern art, it's like whatever you interpret it to be. People do that with literature all, all the time. People do that with paintings all the time, movies all the time. What, what, what do you feel? What do you think? And people do that with the Bible. Well, how do you feel about it? What do you think about it? And that's not how you interpret the Bible. Instead, what the Bible says is what it says about itself. And there's all these tools that you use and uh, the intent of the author and the audience that's receiving it. And so when we have this image of mountains and valleys, it's obviously not that mountains are bad and valleys are bad. It can't be that. And so how do we interpret? Well, Isaiah tells us exactly what he means by it. 
And so if you look here, and he talks about every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground make level, the rough places a plain. Clearly, you're just talking about smoothing out landscape. Well, why do we do that? God is the author of mountains. Um, mountains have all their own beauty because he's, he's telling us something very specific. Verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. He's using mountains and valleys to communicate the dark places that exist because of them. You have shadows that exist on the land. You have, you have dark places because of valleys. You, you're coming close to it when you hit Psalm 23. He talks about the valley of the shadow of death. Normally, valleys are, are wonderful places. My family this past summer, um, we were in the Shenandoah Valley. If you've never been there, you should go. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely beautiful. So valleys in and of themselves aren't the problem. The problem is this. If you want to shine a light, mountains and valleys are going to create dark places that the light doesn't penetrate. The closest maybe we could come in our modern day is in large cities. New York City, they've done all these studies over the shadows created by skyscrapers. It's so critical that there's actually laws written in place in New York City that if someone has had an apartment building or even an office building with a a view, a window that the sun can come in, you can't build a building to block that from them because they understand the value of sunlight. Cedar Street in New York City, where these photos are taken, sees only about 30 to 45 minutes of sunlight a day. The rest of it's in shadow. That doesn't mean it doesn't get daylight, but it doesn't get sunlight. It's pitched into darkness. They've done all these studies that you can actually track the walking patterns of people, and they walk more in the light than they will in the darkness. Parks that experience extreme shade, people don't use. Crime is higher in heavily shaded areas than in lit areas. In Jeremiah, he's describing the wilderness wanderings of the Jews and the wilderness known for its mountains, high mountains, and its deep valleys. He describes it this way in Jeremiah 2.6. It is a land of deserts and pits, and a land of drought and deep darkness, and a land that none passes through where no man dwells. The ministry of John the Baptist, we're being told, was to proclaim in a way where God makes those mountains flat and raises the valleys up so that there would be nothing to obstruct the shining light of God's glory reaching into every part of your life. That all of us, every person, every man, woman, and child, every Jew, every Gentile, could experience the shining light of God's glory. For that to happen, barriers will have to be removed. Depths will have to be raised. Glory would have to be put on display. There are parts of your life and my life that are very dark, that are very difficult, that are very painful. They are dark because of evil in our lives and evil in this world. They are dark because of injustice that we live with and we experience. They are dark because of the shame from sin that we have done. They are dark because of the shame of sin that has been done to us. And they're dark because of the shame of sin that's just been done in front of us. 
They're dark because we wrestle with anxious, depressive thoughts at times. They're dark because our health waits, wastes, and fades away. They're dark because relationships get broken and lost. They're dark because of the pressures that we exist under. And into that darkness, we long for the shining light of God's glory. The ultimate darkness is the lostness of our own souls and our sinfulness. The experience of realizing that what the Bible says about me is true, that I'm a sinner, because we're all sinners. And these dark thoughts and actions we do our sinful anger and lust and bitterness and resentment. The darkness of our selfishness are all-consuming. It's all about me. The darkness of our insecurities and fears that I need and demand others to build me up. Into all of these dark places, these, these, this wonderful picture of a place of mountains and valleys, there's something about John the Baptist's message and the truth of the king that it's intended to flatten all of that out and for God's glory to shine forth. I think what is most difficult in that moment is the temptation that we have to realize that light will expose us. And we don't want that. And that's exactly how the Pharisees and Sadducees respond. So hear this now. The people that were most terrified of the dark places being exposed were the respected religious. It wasn't the quote-unquote worst of the worst. It's the people that are working so hard to convince everybody else they already have it together. As believers, though, as we walk through the darkness of the world, we should long to see the glorious light of Christ in his, in his power, in his majesty, in his rule to go forth, both in our lives personally and in the world around us. And so the first picture, the first reason here for mountains and valleys is to demonstrate, to give us this kind of living illustration of shadows and light, And so the need to make it all flat so the glorious light of Christ goes forth. The second is to contrast the roughness and smoothness. You certainly start to get the picture of that in verse 4 of Isaiah when he says, Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall be made level, and the rough places a plain. Uh, You you can see it as well here in verse 3 when he says, Make his paths straight. That's kind of language that is make it easy to run on, is a way to think about it. Uh, My brother in law, I I know this will shock you, I am not a runner. Um, My brother in law, though, is, and he's gotten into running quite a bit over the last two years or so, and he's trying, his goal this year is to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Um, and so he, we, at Christmas, we were just talking and he's getting ready to run a race. I, I don't know if it's this week or next week, sometime in January, he's going to run a marathon in Asheville, North Carolina. Now, if you've ever been to the Rocky mountains, you know, the Appalachian mountains are not mountains. That's, I, sorry, it's just true. Having said that, he's also run a race at Myrtle beach before. And I'm going to bet running in Asheville is a lot different than running in Myrtle Beach. One's flat, 
One's got some elevation that you're going to be running up and down. Now, I don't want to run either. But my brother-in-law is running in Asheville as part of his training program to make him faster so that he can qualify for the Boston Marathon. But he would understand if, if you want to run your fastest pace, typically you're going to run where it's flat. If you had a million people you were trying to get from point A to point B, would you rather travel across the plains of Oklahoma or try to cross the Rockies of Colorado? It's a no-brainer. When, when Moses leads the children of Israel out, they could have come straight up through where we all are familiar more geographically with it now, the Gaza region, which is largely flat. But no, God took them through the wilderness, through the mountains and the valleys. And so when they finally come, and it's not that Jerusalem, Jerusalem sits on a mountain, um, but it's nothing like what they experienced in the wilderness. So when they come across the river into the promised land, it felt like we're going into largely agrarian plains, smooth sailing. What he's telling us is part of, the, part of the picture here is a smoothing out of the road, a smoothing out of the path that we walk and that we run. Hebrews chapter 12 picks up the same kind of imagery when it's talking about the journey of a believer. And the whole picture of Hebrews chapter 12 is that your sanctification journey and my sanctification journey as Christians, that it's all about, it's like running a race. So run and don't grow weary. Uh, run even when you get weary, don't faint. In, in other words, don't stop. Keep your eye on the finish line. Always looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, right? And, and, but then he says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. The second way to think about the wilderness is in a place of difficult journey. It's hard. Life is hard. Right? I, I grew up hearing this from my parents all the time. Life's not fair. Injustice happens. Um, you know, you got to put up with some, with some difficult people, right? Um, as one motivational poster I saw one time, it's hard to fly like an eagle when you're running with turkeys. Right? We deal with obnoxious people, we deal with ignorant people, we deal with difficulties in our lives, right? My, my kids love to joke about how old I am. Um, I broke my foot last year. I missed one step, right? <laughs> one step, boom, broken foot. Like, life is hard. And what he's telling us is the mountains and valleys illustrate some of the difficulties of our lives. So there's supposed to be, there's something then in this message that somehow smooths it out. Now, that's going to take some work to unpack because I don't know, but the last time I checked, becoming a Christian did not make my life seem smoother. You see, when I'm lost and you hit me, I'm going to hit you right back. Now I'm a follower of Christ, and I don't have that luxury. When I'm an unbeliever, you sin against me, I can cut you off. Now I'm a believer, I don't have that luxury. 
I don't like you, I can be like, I'm not going to be around you. Then I got Jesus calling me to love even my enemies. There's all things about being a Christian that actually seem very, very difficult. Now, Jesus even pictured as take up your cross and follow me. Now, I am full well aware also that he said his burden is easy. Right? Or his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So there's some mystery in there. Guess what? Isaiah points to the reality of that mystery. Because the prophecy in Isaiah 40 is more like bookends. And so we have this here at the start. Guess what he says at the end of Isaiah? Darren read it. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What if the arrival of the king has less to do with it making life objectively smoother and it has more to do with because of your union with Christ Christ in you you can run up mountains like you're running on the beach what if you can fly over valleys because of his strength in you coming out of you what if you can endure losses work through difficulties grow and change it i'm not a runner I, I i do like to i like to lift weights and so if you're lifting weights you need a spotter sometimes or you never get to failure and if you don't get to failure you don't grow well there's something to be said when you're laying on a bench under a barbell with weight on it whatever weight you can lift and so when you max out that barbell's laying across your chest i want you to know that's uncomfortable like it's scary painful and so you're pushing with everything you've got, and there's nothing more. But if you've got a good spotter, that spotter's behind you, and they put their hands on it, and all of a sudden, it's as though, hear me now, it's as though the yoke is easy and the burden is light. John the Baptist is preaching that kind of king. And so this is the truth that he is unveiling. The very first picture then is to help show us it isn't our strength, it's his strength. It isn't our power, it's his power. It isn't our endurance, it's his endurance. The second way to think about mountains and valleys, besides the shadows and light, light is the roughness and smoothness of it. He's giving the kind of power that literally makes us rise above difficult terrain. On a salvation level, that's clear, right? We can't save ourselves. But he can. He makes the dead Alive! As Christians, we should actually shout a loud and hearty amen that it isn't our righteousness. It's not our power. It's not our strength. It's not our wisdom or ability, but it's God in us coming out of us. And so this is a sermon intended to prepare the way for that reality. What is the truth that can do these things? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. What can make your mountains and valleys into plains? What can make the rough land smooth? This sermon, repent. Because what he says is I'm preaching. Why is he preaching that? Because it's a fulfillment of this. And if that leaves you then questioning, well, like, how does that do it, though? How does that sermon make this happen? It's such a critical sermon. It's such an important sermon that it's actually the same sermon Jesus preaches. Because when he starts his public ministry, if you just flip a page over in your, in your Bible or so, in Matthew 4, 17, read what Jesus preaches. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So there is a power in that sentence. There is a power and a majesty in that sermon that does this good work. Ha! What? And that takes us to picture two. Harvest time. And so all the rest of this that we've read from John the Baptist is intended to help unpack how what I've just said to you will happen, how that actually happens. How does that intersect with our lives? And so let's think about it this way first. Repentance versus unrepentance. Because that is the core of the sermon, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So we can just take it in two parts. Um, that way, repent, and then the kingdom. What's he mean by, by the king and this kind of thing? So repentance versus unrepentance. Repentance, uh, it, literally the word in the Greek, literally means a turning or a change, a transformation of, of something. Now, I say something because, um, and I've preached this a number of times in the church, I, but I, these are core truths that I like to remind you of because there's so much heresy out there today. Right, So the classic claim, heretical claim, um, and I do mean the word heresy because it's such a twisting of gospel truth, uh, <clears throat> is it's metanoia, and so that means change because it's a combination of the word change of mind so that that's all repentance means. You change your mind about something, and that's what God means when he says repent. So you change your mind to believe who Jesus is, or you change your mind about something. It doesn't involve anything beyond a change of how you think, and that's, that's the way they make that argument. That's the argument made by people who do not understand language or how it works. Let me prove this to you. You know what a butterfly is? It's two words, right? Butter and fly. You ever seen a stick of butter flying? Me neither. Lightning bug. You know what that is? Well, those cute little bugs you send your kids out, springtime, you gather, you know, put a bunch in a jar, gives you light. So they're, they're adorable. They're cute. It's not a bug that has a spark of lightning in it. Lightning. Just like we do this with language all the time. You have compound words. It's more than the sum of its parts. And in Hebrew thinking, they never thought of repentance ever. It's only, oh, I changed the way I think. It always involved a change of how you think, what you do, and how you feel. In other words, your whole person. All of it. And if you study repentance throughout the Bible, 66 books, guess what? You will find that that's the case over and over and over again. Now, we get two of those three parts in the text this morning. The part we don't get here is the feeling part, the emotive part. And this is really, really important because Paul clarifies the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow in Corinthians, right? And so it's, it's, sometimes it's easy to be deceived by Tears, right? We even have this phrase from crocodile tears. Uh, we talk about the difference be, between I'm crying because I got caught 
versus I'm crying because I'm broken over what I've done. We, we understand this reality. All of us have been there. Um, we've, we've all done this before. Uh, and so Paul points out in Corinthians that they are sorrowing, but he's thankful that their sorrow led to godly. It was a godly sorrow, not a worldly sorrow, because godly sorrow led to a transformation of what they did. It's not just that I'm sad about it. I'm not, I'm not just sad, Paul, that, I was, that we were doing the wrong thing as a church, but we're changing what we're doing now. If you want to think about the emotional concept of it, you, all you have to do is go to James chapter 4, where he talks about when a believer is turning from their sin. He describes it as this intense sorrow, this intense weeping, this intense grief. But it's always, 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 genuine repentance always includes changing how you think and what you do. You can have the feeling without the other two, and it's not genuine repentance. You can have somebody stand in front of you crying, sorrowful. You can experience sorrow. It's not the same as genuine repentance. So we get two of the three. We don't have the emotional uh, component here in this portion of the text. Just like in James 4, he largely centers on action and feeling, not necessarily on thinking. Ephesians 4 unpacks lots about changing the way you think and changing what you do. Because he says like something like seven times in four verses, change your mind, change your, think, uh, change your thinking. But then afterwards he says, stop lying, but speak the truth to your neighbor. So you have how you think, and then you have what you do. Stop stealing, but get a job. <laughs> uh, make some money, good. And then give to the poor, right? So it's how I think and what I do. No emotion there. James 4, more emotion and doing. So here we get thinking and doing, but not the emotional component. First, how we think about sin and what we do with it. So verse 4, picking up here. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river, of J- river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, uh, what is the importance of the camel's hair and the locusts and wild honey? Because John is running around dressed in clothing that is reminiscent of a prophet. He is like a prophet of old. Later, Jesus is going to tell us that he is the greatest prophet that ever was. He is in the likeness of, hear me now, in the likeness of Moses and Elijah. So much so that later they ask him, are you Moses, the new Moses and the new Elijah? Because God had told them, Moses, a new Moses and a new Elijah is going to come. Well, that was actually Jesus. And so John's quick to tell them, no, that's not who I was. That's not who I am. Jesus tells them that's not who John the Baptist is. But the Jews understood that this is kind of the kind of thing it would look like. Now, just, let's just process that for a second. What that means is the forerunner of Jesus gave off Jesus vibes. The forerunner of Jesus gave off Messiah vibes. The forerunner of Jesus gave off kingly vibes so that they looked at him and they're asking, are you him? That should tell us something. Why are we called Christians? What vibes do we give off? What sense do people get when they interact with us? Now, this is in its time and in its era, 
right? And so the camel's hair and the leather belt and the locusts and the honey and the coming out of the edge, he literally comes right to the edge of the wilderness is where he's at preaching. So it's like somebody coming out of the, this, this desert region. It's very Moses-like, very Elijah-like, right? And he's preaching, the king's right behind me. He's coming. And what he's declaring is, when you follow the king, you're going to be like an outsider, not an insider. And if you actually go down, you can see the, the stunning contrast to the insiders. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these guys are the religious insiders. One of the ways we should think about sin and righteousness is to understand that righteous living, righteous behavior, righteous following the king will always stick out. Just will. It will make you different. Just like John the Baptist is different here. He is not willing to wear the clothing of the religious leaders to get everybody's approval. He's not willing to become a chameleon on the inside to get things done. Sin makes you an insider in the religious system. If you do church in a particular way, you can make it really easy for lost people to feel like they belong. In the sense that they're just like people who follow Jesus. And I'm going to tell you the number one way to do that. Become a legalist. Give a set of rules to follow. Because if you give them this whole set of rules to follow, you can follow the rules and never know the Savior. And that's exactly how the Pharisees and the Sadducees, Sadducees had their own little set of rules. So they're not, when you think, typically we think of New Testament, we think, oh, Pharisees, the legalists, Sadducees, not. Any legalism is simply this. Any kind of rule following that you believe makes you righteous or makes you more sanctified. That's what it is. Read the book of Galatians. It's, it doesn't matter. And, and so both of them had their own kind of distinct set of rules that they're going to follow along. And so you follow the list of rules, you wear a certain set of clothing, and you fit in. John is coming, and he's like an outsider to all of that mess. Because when you and I start thinking rightly about sin and righteousness, we realize this. Religion and religiosity is not what makes me right with God. Church attendance is not what makes me right. Wearing the right clothes, carrying the right body, being in all the right places, that's not what makes me right with God. So when we start thinking about sin and righteousness, we start thinking rightly that it has everything to do with what's going on in my heart. Jesus spends so much time trying to preach and explain this to the people of his day, right? It's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out of him. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Right? He, he talks about the publican beating his chest, I'm unworthy, and contrasts it with the Pharisee who thinks he's already righteous. I'm glad I'm not as bad as he is. Look, if you ever think in your mind, yeah, I'm just glad I'm not that sinner. <sighs> Can we just agree that's going to be a massive neon wake-up sign that your heart is bent towards religiosity and legalism instead of towards humility? The second way we see it with these guys is the contrast of the way the repentant people behave. They confess, right? So 
and, and I'm going to get to behavior in just a minute here, but, but they think about their sin in such a way that I'm ready to own it. I don't have to convince you. You're ready to own the reality of your own sinful behavior. I've given this illustration before, but, you know, over 17 years, you only have so many. Um, first year I'm married, wife and I, we have a fight, <clears throat> argument. I've learned over years I do need to define this. Like, there's never been, like, pots and pans throwing. There's never, right, like, there's no plates crashing. And if that's happened in your marriage, I'm not actually even judging you. But, but we had an argument. And it was one of those arguments that me and my wisdom and my wonderful leadership, I stormed out of the bedroom and said, I will not share a bed with a woman who doesn't respect me. Boy, I showed her, didn't I? Um, yeah, pray for my wife. So I went out. It was like 20 years ago. We've been married 20 years this summer. So it was 19 years ago, I went out and slept on the sofa. And the whole night, like, I knew I was wrong, right? But, like, loathe to do it. I'm not going to make things right. Um, and so the whole night, tossing and turning, um, I could hear her in there sleeping soundly. Like, she, she had a clear conscience. So, so, like, the next morning I got up, and I knew I should feel guilty, but I didn't feel guilty. And so I spent all this time praying, all this time praying, all this time, like, what, what could I do? And then finally, but when I went to confess it, I remember something somebody else had told me. And so when I went, I said, I've done this, 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 and this. And I can see how this may have affected this kind of hurt and this kind of hurt and this kind of hurt and this kind of hurt in your life. I don't think I've seen it all. I, I own this. Are there other ways are there other ways that I've said that you perceive in other ways has impacted you? Now, I can go back 19 years for that illustration because because you need to know, like, that was the spirit. That's not Steve Johns. Because when repentance happens, we are ready to own what we've done and to hear its impact. We're not on a mission to hide anymore who we are and what we've done. What did they do? They said, verse 6, they are confessing their sins. Now, we don't know if that means they're like detailing grocery listing. I, I doubt it because the numbers, they, but they are willing to say in a public confession way, I'm a sinner and I'm unclean. That's what repentant people do. You don't have to argue with them. You don't have to fight with them. They own it because they are thinking about their sin differently. Unrepentant people are more worried about how they look or sound than what the king will say or think about them. Unrepentant people are offended by the concept of their sinfulness. They actually act like these guys in verse 9 John the Baptist perceives what their response is internally as he's preaching a message of repentance. Verse 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And their belief system was God has already uh, chosen us because he's made us Jews and we're children of Abraham, we're in. They literally had a mindset that they would show up at, 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 at Abraham's bosom, they, they would die and there's Sheol and there's good side and bad side and like Abraham's there checking the Jewish card. Literally. And then you're in. This is the way unrepentant people think. I don't need to repent or confess my sin. I'm already good. 
Secondarily, not just how we think, but what we do. Their actions are transformed. It's symbolized in two ways. They get baptized in verse 6. And it's public in their statements when they confess their sins. This baptism is a baptism of cleansing. This is a baptism that is symbolic. Uh, just like our baptisms are symbolic. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism doesn't actually wash you clean. It's a symbol of the outside has been made clean, which reflects the work that God has already done on the inside with your sin. We understand that that's the case because John the Baptist refuses to baptize those who have clearly not been transformed by salvation. That's why we don't baptize people um, that are not believers as much as we can make that determination. Now, and, and I know quickly you're like, well, how do you know anyone's heart? There are fruits of repentance. There's understanding of doctrine. So there's all these kinds of things. And Darren and I would be more than happy to have those conversations with you. But by and large, you ask all those questions. We don't ever just, we don't finish a service and say, let's go outside, turn on the fire hose and, and everybody get baptized. You know, it's like I preached down in Guatemala a number of years ago and I preached a salvation message. It was through a translator. And uh, I finished the sermon. He gave an invitation. All these people came forward. And the next thing I know, they're baptizing all of them. And I'm like, what are we doing? He's like, well, we've learned if we don't baptize them right away, they don't come back. I'm like, then they weren't saved. He's like, oh, no, no. But at least now they're baptized and, and they're good to go. I said, well, do they come back just because they're baptized? He said, no. But then he wanted to give me all the numbers of people they had baptized the year before. Do you know the lesson I learned that day? Always check where you preach. Because I'm like, this is a mess. Like John looks at these guys and he says, I'm, what, are you, what are you doing here? You're not repentant. You want to look like you are, but you're not. Repentance always will be a transformation of the way you think and what you do. It just does. Because it's a work of God in you. Unrepentant people are more worried about looking like they're on board than the sacrifice of actual humble obedience shown through a transformed life. We've got to move now. There's consequences, though, of our responses to this message. What happens then if we misread the room? What happens if we miss it like these guys? What happens if we don't care about the king like some of these guys did not care about the king. And this is when he really switches to this harvest time kind of illustration. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, the language is interesting there because it means they were coming to observe and look like they were in approval, but not actually participate. And so that's what John calls them out on. Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, Bear fruit, first harvest kind of picture, fruit. Get, get some fruit in your life. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. True repentance will always result in fruit. The imagery there is a transformed life. You change what you do. Ephesians, you stop lying, speak truth. You stop stealing, you start working and giving. Bring fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. It's a whole other part of the sermon I could preach there that repentance understands God doesn't need me, he wants me. Unrepentance declares God needs me. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. 
Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Some of you are absolutely running ahead to Jesus' imagery there in one of his last sermons in the garden when he's talking about the vine and the branches. The, the, the harvest time here, you can tell what is the barren tree and what isn't. Uh, Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem early. Remember, he sees the fig tree and then he curses it because it's not bearing fruit. It's cut down and thrown in the fire. We have this harvest imagery. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. There will be a separation at the end when the king determines he will give judgment and he will separate the repentant from the unrepentant. He will separate the saved from the lost. He will judge, and his judgment will be perfect. We will get it wrong. That's why he later tells his disciples, don't try to run through the church and yank up every weed. You'll get it wrong sometimes. Sometimes it's obvious. The vast majority of the time we would get it wrong, but he will judge. The enemy loves to sow among believers weeds among the wheat. How will you know? And, and John is telling them, look, when the king comes, the harvest time will reveal, and there will be consequences to your response. So the sermon is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is intended to shine the glorious light of, of Christ into every place and into every dark place and to deal with your life in such a way that enables you to run as though it's smooth. And it accomplishes this because there has been a massive radical transformation of repentance from sin and following of the king. How does any of this occur? How does this all really connect? And it all connects through the work of the king. And so Matthew is wanting to prepare us to receive his sermon, just like John the Baptist is wanting to prepare us to receive the king this is a king then that we can really celebrate. The kind of king that comes into our lives and makes these mountains and valleys into the plains of our lives. And so he, he says this language in verse 11. This king comes, and how does all this happen? Because he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and fire. He, he literally puts us into and puts the Spirit into us. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. Every believer. It's not another work later that happens. When you get saved, he puts the Spirit in you. Um, this past summer, we studied through union with Christ and understanding that as a believer, Christ is in me. My identity is in Christ. Christ is in me. I am in him. The Spirit is put into us. And he, and he says, the Holy Spirit and fire... What does he mean there? The way he uses fire in verse 11, there's, there's all this question, right? Because then he uses fire again in verse 12. But the language in verse 11, it's together, the, the spirit with fire. So what that leaves us with then is saying, okay, the fire in verse 11 is not judgment. There's some fire work that he's doing in us through the power of the spirit. And what would that be? Well, we're early in the gospel and we're early in the New Testament 
And so there's progressive revelation as God unveils his plan and his work of redemption and how it works out. And so you can easily look through the rest of the New Testament and understand what's he talking about with that fire. The Holy Spirit's presence of fire in us, listen now, purifies our faith, strengthens our faith, and reveals our faith. How do you know when someone's a Christian? Lots of... Lots of different, but I'll tell you this. You watch somebody go through a trial and walk with Jesus through it. I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm not, so what do I mean by that? You understand like Job, I'm in the middle of the stink of life, but Jesus is with me. He is with me, I am his, and he is mine. The fire, fire of trials reveals, the, the fire purifies our faith, it, 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 right? Like we've all experienced this. If we've walked with Jesus for any length of time, you've experienced the fact that the fire of the Spirit in you, convicting you of sin, purifying your walk, slowly changing you to be more like Jesus, it reveals what's really important and what's not. And do I love Jesus more than whatever this is over here? Whatever thing in my life that I'm losing or is being taken away or that I can't attain to, do I love Jesus more than this? That I'm being transformed from one glory to the next. God is not frustrated. Listen, God is not frustrated with your growth pattern. He's engaged with you as a loving father who has put his spirit and the, the fire of the spirit in you to change you because he loves you and he's transforming you. He says, this is the work that will be done. I don't know about you, but when I think about the dark places of my life, I want the shining light of the glory of Christ to pierce into every one of those and change them, to transform me. How can that happen? It's when Christ, it's when the King shows up. It's like, give us the King. the dark places of anxiety. How I run to the promises of King Jesus, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you always to the end of the world. The darkness of financial pressure. Do I not clothe the flowers of the field? The darkness of aloneness and loneliness. Do I not count the hairs on your head and do I know the, spirits, the sparrows and care for them? The darkness of insecurities and fears and inadequacies. Does he not look at you and say that I am your father? Call me Abba. All of that because of the king. None of that happens without the king. All of it comes because King Jesus shows up. Now, John and Matthew do an amazing thing here. Because at the end of Isaiah 10, you have very similar imagery to the way John the Baptist section here of his sermon comes to an end. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He would clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. The chaff he would burn with unquenchable fire. That is a terrifying reality. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bowels with terrifying power. The great and height will be hewn down. The lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe. 
And Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. You ever walked, driven by a place that's been freshly logged? Years and years ago, I remember when, uh, before Peter and Carolyn got married, Peter had a bachelor's party. It was the best one ever because we went shooting. You remember this, Peter? We went out shooting, and they had logged it, and it looked like a barren wasteland. Like it was, it's it's just as hideous. Have you ever driven by one of these places where it's just mud and stumps? There is, that's the imagery he's giving to us in Isaiah that just like he's gone through and he's hewn it down. And this is what John the Baptist, the imagery he's gathering from Isaiah is that when the king comes, that even while he is making mountains low and valleys high, and he's making a plain and glory goes forth and you will rise up like eagles. He says others, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the lost ones, the ones that are contributing to the darkness of the world, the evil ones driven by the evil power of this world. He says he will come in like a terrifying winnowing harvester that just just raises the ground and there's nothing but death do you know what i feel like sometimes in life if i turn on the news i mean i was joking with my son the other day um he gets to vote this year for his first time he turns 18 oh this is so what a great election this is amazing right we got one guy we're not sure if he's awake most of the time I, i'm just be i'm gonna be frank with you we got another lady that doesn't know what what the civil war was about God bless her. She, I like her a lot, but come on. Do we have to be that political? We have another guy that his best fight was against Mickey Mouse, and he lost. Right? Like, it's like, what do we, my son gets to vote. I'm like, King Jesus. Like, I don't, like okay, I'm going to vote, whatever. But it's dark. It's dark. Just this past week, there's earthquakes and another school shooting. It is dark. There's this ongoing war. I read an article just the other day, like Israel's trying to wipe Hamas out. They're not... How do you kill a seven-headed monster? Thousands have died. Like, it's dark. And there's a part of me, it's like, this feels just like more darkness. Like, yes, we want justice. But this just feels... So difficult. This feels like death of everything. Not just death of a dream, death of a vision, death, death of a relationship, death of health, death of beauty, death of productivity. It, it feels like we're in this dark place. But Matthew is writing to Jews, and they didn't have the wonderful chapters and verses that we have that make it so easy. And so if you end Isaiah 10, 33, 34, it feels like just death. And if you end with John the Baptist, it feels like death. But they knew what they were doing because guess what the very next verse is? The Messiah. Life out of death. And so it's, you're looking at this barren wasteland and then you see this one stump and you walk over to it and you see this wonderful new growth coming up out of it. Jesus is life out of death. He is the king who is coming. He is light piercing darkness. He is the king who shines forth his glory. We prepare. How do you and I prepare for the king coming in all his glory? By living lives of repentance. Repentance is not a one-time act. It's an ongoing lifestyle of following Jesus. Begins with your conversion, repentance from sin. It carries forward as you follow him. 
you prepare for the king coming in all his glory by enjoying his presence even when you're in dark valleys in low places. You prepare for the king coming in all his glory by staying faithful in hard times. We prepare for the king coming in all his glory by walking by his power and not our own. We prepare for the king who is coming in all his glory by celebrating his presence in us now with worship and work that looks forward to his reward. This is what our section ends this morning. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. He'll gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And the very next thing says this, then Jesus came. Ha ha. Then out of the death stump comes this new sprig of life. Are you prepared for the king who is coming in all his glory? Is that evidenced out of your life? It may be that you're here this morning and you don't know him. Your life is consumed in darkness because it's the darkness of your own sin. It's not just your existential reality of a very difficult season of life. It is life because you were ruled. The Bible is so clear that judgment will come. And so I call to you like John the Baptist and like Jesus will do in chapter 4. Repent. Turn from your sin. Believe in Christ and follow him. And know the glorious light of Christ.